Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. The historic Claremont Hotel in Oakland is nothing short of an absolute stunner. It's got a castle-like architecture that looks like nothing else you'll see in the Bay Area. The whole facade is brilliantly white, like even the windows and the roof tiles are white, so it really pops against the eucalyptus grove behind it. And it's bursting with luxury amenities. A pool, tennis courts, a spa, the works. But the one amenity it didn't have for a very long time, a bar. It was always interesting to me that you'd have this really grand hotel, and it's beautiful in every way, but it operated for a long time without a bar. This is Sam Hopkins of Oakland. He lives near the Claremont Hotel and over the years has heard a lot of speculation about why the hotel didn't serve alcohol long before prohibition took hold. Were the owners part of the temperance movement, promoting abstinence from alcohol? Was there actually a speakeasy there? I had heard there's a, a legend or a myth about a Berkeley co-ed who was part of um, helping them get their liquor license. So that's an interesting story too, although I don't know if it's true or not. What took so long for the place to finally get a bar? Which just seems like uh, just so crazy to think of a hotel without a bar, especially one of that, um, that stature, I guess. Today on Bay Curious, we're answering Sam's question, which was the winner of our July voting round on baycurious.org. Today, by the way, is the last day to vote in our August voting round, so be sure to check that out. I'm Olivia Allen Price. We'll get to it all after this quick break. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 
That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. We're answering Sam's question about why the Claremont Hotel didn't have a bar in its early years. Well, spoiler alert, they eventually did get a bar. And we sent reporter Catherine Monahan on the tough assignment to check it out, try a drink, and get the backstory. The light is soaking in from the bay, reflecting off the textured metal ceiling. The floor is these tiny black and white tiles radiating into hexagons. And... My drink is ready. What's the name of this again? Oh, Rosa Mexicana. Beautiful. It looks like a unicorn's crystal jacuzzi. It's all pink and frothy. It goes perfectly with the fairy tale castle look of this hotel. And the terrace, where I'm about to carry my drink, I can see the Bay Bridge, I can see the Golden Gate, I can see Mount Tam, Alcatraz, Treasure Island, that's Angel Island. I mean, this is, this is spectacular. But... The Terrace Bar hasn't always been here. For decades, the Claremont Hotel didn't have a bar at all. And to understand why, we'll need to step all the way back to the late 1800s. The theory was alcohol was the root of all evil. So get rid of alcohol and you'll get rid of a lot of evils. Jeff Finley is the librarian at the Berkeley Public Library's History Room. The temperance movement was really taking on. Prohibition was still 50 years in the future, and there was plenty of drinking going on. Northern California was considered especially depraved, full of gold miners and ruffians. But that was where the first University of California was built, in downtown Oakland. The professors and the like uh, found that it was in an unsavory part of Oakland because of um, bordellos and saloons. So in 1873, they moved it to its present campus in Berkeley. Back then, Berkeley was much more rural. It was populated probably by more cows than people at the time. It was considered a, a, an okay place to send a bunch of 20-year-old men and, without having the evil influences of alcohol. To further protect the students, a state law was added. California Penal Code Section 172, banning the sale of alcohol within two miles of UC Berkeley. But then cooler heads prevailed, and in 1876, they reduced that to one mile. And the Claremont Hotel would soon be built just under one mile away. Now, the UC trustees weren't the only ones eyeing those East Bay Hills. A pair of investors calling themselves the Realty Syndicate was buying up tens of thousands of acres, which they would soon develop into some of the fanciest neighborhoods in the Bay Area. By about 1900, uh, Francis Borax Smith acquired the property that they, Claremont is on. Smith had earned his fortune and his nickname from Borax, a mineral with household and industrial uses. He mined it in Death Valley and hauled it with a 20-mule team. Shortly after he acquired the property, however, in a game of checkers, he lost it. Um, Checkers. He lost it to Frank Havens, um, a business partner of his. Since the property was within one mile of UC Berkeley, within the legal dry zone, Smith and Havens wouldn't be able to sell alcohol on it. But they had a much larger scheme in mind. The people that were doing all this were all about making money. 
Smith had used his borax fortune to buy up all the streetcar lines in the Bay Area and some ferries and unify all of that into a single network called the Key System. So he and Havens were selling not just sunny properties with beautiful views, but also a way to commute to work. Go ahead and guess how long it took to get from Berkeley to San Francisco in 1906 via electric train and ferry. 35 minutes. They really appealed to the people who had a lot of money that lived in San Francisco when it was destroyed by the earthquake. It was like, this is a great place to relocate. To entice potential home buyers over from the city, Smith and Havens built a tourist attraction at the end of their new streetcar line the biggest hotel on the West Coast, shaped like a castle, the Claremont Hotel. The opening was time to go with the World's Fair in San Francisco, the one that the Palace of Fine Arts was built for. It was 1915. So the train would have dropped us off right here? Yeah, the train would have dropped off guests, and then you could walk up kind of this grand promenade under the stone masonry arch. With and all you, these same kind of flowers. Exactly. Michelle Heston is director of public relations for the Claremont Hotel. She says the original plan was for the trains to pull right up into the lobby. But the station ended up outside in front of the carriage entrance. Imagine arriving right in your corset and your umbrella and your big steamer case. I was wearing a corset? (laughs) Did I have a horse? (laughs) Well, you were probably from a wealthy family, so you probably arrived in a carriage. Heston shows me in through the stone archway through the lobby with its marble floors and velvet couches. Gosh, it's so pretty. Isn't it pretty? And into the hotel's ballroom. Smells old. (laughs) Not in a bad way. (laughs) No, it does. (laughs) It's a long, wide room with thick columns and a carpet and a big built-in stage with a shiny curtain. So this is where the band would have performed. And the dancers back here. Exactly. And you'd have cocktail tables around the perimeter. But no cocktails. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So it was not permitted for alcohol to be sold near the university, but prior to Prohibition, there was nothing against actually having alcohol or drinking it, so far as I understand. That's what I understand as well. So what would you do? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) come on. I know what I'd do. (laughs) So just because the hotel couldn't sell alcohol doesn't mean people didn't bring it in. And then came Prohibition in 1920. Alcohol became completely illegal nationwide. But dancing was still okay. Big bands performed at the Claremont all through the 20s and 30s. And the UC Berkeley students, those vulnerable, innocent students, came to dance. The Claremont ran advertisements in the Daily Cal, the student paper, for the college special dancing, punch, and assorted sandwiches for a dollar. The Daily Cal also had a column called Who's Hooey about what the cool kids were doing, and it was always talking about how so-and-so went out to the Claremont. Heston says there are no records of a speakeasy in the hotel, but... There were always private rooms in hotels that locked from the inside that guests could rent for the evenings that were meant for events. So, right. We check out a 1922 photograph in a booklet of Claremont Hotel history. It shows jolly young men and women in suits and dresses dancing in the ballroom. It says, Prohibition did not dampen the enthusiasm of partygoers, some of whom recall carrying their portable bars 
to a suite for between dance refreshment. There you go. See? That's what you're talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So it wasn't even like they were sleeping in the suite necessarily? Probably not. So on the surface, Berkeley kept it pretty lawful and wholesome, unlike San Francisco and Oakland, which had obvious active speakeasies and a reputation for not caring at all. But when Prohibition ended in 1933, that one-mile dry zone around the university finally started to hydrate. First, beer was permitted. And then in 1937, the law changed again to say that the one-mile distance could be measured by road rather than as the crow flies. According to legend... It was to a group of students that actually went and measured it out from the closest Cal campus building. And the hotel gave free drinks for life to the girl who showed that it was over a mile. At least, that's how the story goes. And so finally, after more than two decades of serving punch and tea and the like, the Claremont Hotel got to open a bar. Leslie Emmington grew up right near the hotel. I heard it always referred to, and my cousin Lorraine, oh, going, it was so much fun. Emmington is just 80 years old, so she was too young to go to the bar when it first opened, shortly before World War II broke out. But her cousin Lorraine was a student at Cal at the time, and she used to love going there. During the war, you see, the guys would come, they'd come from Treasure Island, and you could come on the train. That would be a stop coming across the bridge. Sometimes the train would suddenly just be jammed with military guys. And then they could come to the Claremont, too. See, because it was right on the train. It was built to be end of the line. So you could either go to the city or you could come over um, to the Claremont. Wow. So people coming to the Claremont, just partying, coming from the military. Yeah, I mean, the whole Bay Area was just jammed with American young men who'd never been west, of course. And they were here and they were on limited time. It was crawling with the men. And what did Cousin Lorraine say about all that? Well, she loved it. (laughs) (laughs) So a good time was had by all, both with and without alcohol. And Berkeley eventually became the wild, swinging Berkeley of the hippie era, but it took its time. It didn't even allow people to dance and drink in the same room until the 1960s. But here's the part that's the funniest to me. That one-mile law, which dates all the way back to 1855, is still on the books. It's just been amended to bits. And obviously there are bars next to campus now, but the law is still there. So in honor of the old temperance movement and California Penal Code Section 172, I'm having one more drink. This time, right across the street from UC Berkeley. That was KQED's Catherine Monahan. Before you go, I have a favor to ask. Could you open your podcast player and make sure that you're subscribed to the Bay Curious podcast? Only a small percentage of listeners to this show are actually subscribed, and those subscription numbers really help us out. They also help you to make sure you don't miss a future episode. So win-win, right? Thank you for subscribing. Bay Curious is made by Amanda Font, Christopher Beale, and Olivia Allen Price. Additional support from Jen Sheehan, 
Katie Sprenger, Cesar Saldana, and Holly Kernan. We will be dark next week so our team can rest up over Labor Day. We'll be back on September 14th with a fresh episode. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Have a fantastic week. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.